Badram Karne Bishunu Yama Devaha Badram Pashe Maksha Biryajatraha Stirai Ranga Istus Tuvagum Sastanubihi Vyasit Shema Devahi Tanyadayuhu Om Shanti 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 May we hear with our ears what is auspicious. May we see with our eyes what is auspicious. May we enjoy with strong limbs and body the life allotted to us. Om peace, peace, peace. So the topic today is uniting ourselves with the will of God. And the question is, how can we know what the will of God is in the first place? That's one of the first questions. And how do we unite ourselves with it? According to the Vedas, the creation of the universe is the result of the self-sacrifice of the Purusha, or the Supreme Person. It's a timeless, continual act of divine self-sacrifice, and it maintains the harmony of the whole universe. If a man wants to obtain harmony and peace, he too has to imitate the divine and unite with the divine will and make his whole life into a sacrifice. It's through self-sacrifice that man recovers the harmony and develops his potential divinity and attains to peace. This is uniting ourselves to the will of God, or the cosmic will. The Vedic idea of sacrifice is participation in the living drama of the cosmos. Life gives us food, air, energy, ideas, knowledge, love, and joy. It's a flow, which can be maintained only if we give back what is taken. We don't own what belongs to the universe. The manifested Brahman, or Virat, is established in sacrifice. The food we eat, the water, the air, are all sacramental products of divine sacrifice, or yajna. As Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, I have nothing to gain in all the three worlds, yet I continually work. How do we participate in this? Man's conscious action, which is done and offered to the cosmic being, can be his sacrifice. It has to be consciously done, and done with no selfish motive. Thus, one can make no new karmas and actually become aware of the cosmic flow of things. One can unite oneself to the will of God, or the cosmic will, and allow that will to move unobstructed through oneself. It's a spiritual practice in becoming self-aware. And this practice frees man from the bondage of egoism. True self-awareness frees one and converts every action into a sacrifice or a worship. Swami Bhajananda tells us that for God, sacrifice and meditation are not two different acts but two aspects of the same action. Conscious thought and conscious action are only two expressions of one single intentional experience. It is an act of the will, an intentional act. 
As Swamiji tells us, the microcosm, the living being, ourselves, is merely a reflection of the macrocosm or the cosmos. The two are built on the same plan and are in contact with each other. In accordance with the law of sacrifice, the divine creates the universe out of itself and enters into it. The um, example of a spider making a web and then living in the web is given in the Upanishads. The avatar comes to earth and takes a human body as a life of sacrifice for the good of mankind. God comes down so that man may know him. This is the law of sacrifice. Nature compels everyone to follow the law of sacrifice knowingly or unknowingly, willingly or unwillingly. We are all part of this great cosmic worship. The Chandogya Upanishad says, a man is indeed a sacrifice. Every action offers us an opportunity to sacrifice our little selves. Thus, Swami Vivekananda says, it is easier to reconcile one's fate as a sacrifice. We're all sacrifices, each in his or her own way. The great worship is going on. No one can see its meaning except that it is a great sacrifice. And those that are willing escape a lot of pain. Those who resist are broken into submission and suffer more. I am now willing to be a, I am now determined to be a willing sacrifice. We do not want to be making more karma and binding ourselves by our actions. In the case of the illumined soul who's realized God, he still has to bear the effects of his parabda karma, but he no longer reacts to it at all. He builds no new karma. Swamiji gives the example of a wheel that's been cut from its axis. It just rolls for a while through its past momentum, then it wobbles and falls to the ground. The sage may continue to live for some time after illumination, but he makes no new karma, for he knows he's not the doer. He still appears to be acting, but he no longer thinks he's doing anything at all. This does not mean he's a passive person. He acts, but he knows he's not the doer. The prana, or life energy, is constantly activating our samskaras, and desires arise in our mind. But it's only when our will attaches to them that they possess and bind us. If the will is withdrawn through unselfish action and detachment, the desires themselves wither away and die out from the mind. A detached person may see desires arise and fall in his mind, but he's not affected by them. If the will is detached from the desires, the soul remains as a witness, free from the bondage of action. The karma yogi uses the inward turning of his mind to project his inner powers outside for the welfare of the world. When we work in this way, it is a love freely given without expecting anything in return. Love in Hinduism is identified with the unifying power of existence. All life is one, and love is the expression of this unity in life. The karma yogi is regulating his activities in turn with the rhythm of universal love, the cosmic will. We are to work through freedom, Swamiji tells us. Work through love. 
through unselfish action. The minute we have a motive, the minute we want something in return for our work, it has become selfish and it will bind us. It is the idea, I am the doer, that is the problem. In the Gita, Krishna tells Arjuna that he works because he loves the world. That's his only motive. In order to love in an unselfish manner, we must always take the position of a giver. Give, give, give. That's the one thing, Swamiji tells us. Then only can we work without any attachment. Attachment only comes when we expect that return. Real devotion is far off till the aspirant realizes the imminence of God in everything. It is this understanding of the unity in everything and in every person that is central, the central point, in fact, behind Swami Vivekananda's ideal of service. When service becomes an expression of love for the divinity behind every being, then it has reached its fulfill, fulfillment. Selfish work is completely natural to us in the state that we are, but selfless work can also become natural. As Krishna tells Arjuna in the Gita, we are all forced to work by our own nature, and nature by herself does the work. O Arjuna, the Lord is seated in the hearts of all beings. He whirls them around as though mounted on a machine. He tells Arjuna to take refuge in that prime mover. In our studies of karma yoga, we learned that all karma is simply a transformation of energy and matter. They're part of this cosmic movement of the Prakriti and Purusha. The mind constantly moves because of the action of prana or life force in us. All we can do is regulate that flow of thought. The whole universe is in a dynamic state, always in motion, ever-changing. No work is actually ours. Our little ego tries to own a part of the universal action, and it calls it mine. Selfless action is the true action done by Prakriti or the will of God. Egotism is actually a reaction to the natural life stream, an attempt to appropriate actions and separate itself from the natural stream of life. Selfless action is actually spontaneous, natural, relaxing, and peaceful. Prakriti will do everything for us. It is the gunas working on the gunas, as the Gita tells us. It is uniting ourselves <clears throat> with God's action or will. And if we can do that, we will feel peace because we will no longer be struggling. It's possible for a person to become in tune with this process. It depends on the state of the mind of the doer. What binds us to the world is not work, but our desires and egoism. Work must be done with self-awareness, an awareness of the awakened, detached self behind all action. Karma or work will not make new samskaras when the self is detached from desires. Work without desires, work without any motive. Work for work's sake, Swamiji tells us. Ordinary work tends to lead to more work and to bind us more and more. 
But karma yoga is the means of getting out of the whirlpool of the ego in which we're caught and letting prakriti do the work. We work in a detached manner. It doesn't mean doing more and more work, nor does it mean sitting passively and doing nothing. It means working in harmony with detachment, in tune with the will of God, as it were. The karma yogi's detachment is born of love for all people equally. He accepts his own, own limitations, happiness and sorrow, good and evil, and works on without seeking any reward. He's aware of a larger existence that includes all. His work is based on dharma. He constantly has to discriminate between what should and should not be done, kara akara vastu viveka. Discrimination is a big part of karma yoga. The final goal of discrimination is to see the truth of truths, satyasya satya, the oneness in the universe. Many of the world's religious traditions advocate surrender to God as a means of transcending the individual self. Even Sri Ramana Maharshi accepted such an approach and often said this method is, is as effective as self-inquiry. Traditionally, the path of surrender is associated with a dualistic idea and, and devotional practices. But such activities were only of secondary importance to Ramana Maharshi. He stressed that true self-surrender transcended worshiping God in a subject-object relationship, since it could only be successfully accomplished when the one who imagined that he was separate from God had ceased to exist. To achieve this goal, he recommended two distinct practices. One, holding on to the I thought until the one who imagines that he is separate from God disappears. Or two, completely surrendering all responsibility for one's life to God or the self. For such self-surrender to be effective, one must have no will or desire of one's own and must be completely free from the idea that there is an individual person who is capable of acting independently of God. True devotion, he said, is to remain as one really is, in the state of being in which all ideas about relationship with God have ceased to exist. This is uniting oneself with the will of God or with God himself. There should be a constant awareness that there's no individual I who acts or desires that only the self exists, and that there's nothing apart from the self that is capable of acting independently of it. When following this practice, whenever one becomes aware one is assuming responsibility for thoughts and actions, for example, I want this or I'm doing this, one should try to withdraw the mind from its external contacts and fix it on the self. This is the same as the transfer of attention which takes place in self-inquiry when one realizes that self-attention has been lost. In both cases, the aim is to isolate the I-thought and make it disappear into its source. He sometimes advised his followers to undertake exercises which would cultivate their devotion and control their minds. Most of these practices involve thinking or meditating on God or the Guru, either by constantly repeating his name, japa, or visualizing his form. 
He told his devotees that if this were done regularly with love and devotion, then the mind would become effortlessly absorbed in the object of meditation. If one has attained this degree of concentration, self-surrender becomes possible. Once this has been achieved, complete surrender becomes much easier. The constant awareness of God prevents the mind from identifying with other objects and enhances the conviction that God alone exists. It also produces the reciprocal flow of power or grace from the self, which weakens the hold on the I thought and destroys the vasanas, which reinforce its existence. Eventually, the I thought is reduced and managed to manageable proportions. And with a little self-attention, it can be made to sink into the heart. As with self-inquiry, the final realization is brought about automatically by the power of the self or the Atman. When all the outgoing tendencies of the mind have been dissolved in the repeated experiences of being, the self destroys the vestigial I-thought so completely that it never arises again. This final destruction of the I takes place only if the self-surrender has been completely without motive. Even if it is done for the desire of grace or self-realization, it can never be more than just a partial surrender, a business transaction, in which the I-thought makes an effort in the ex expectation of receiving a reward. Complete surrender requires that you have no desire of your own. You must be satisfied with whatever God gives you, and that means having no desire of your own, no motive, not even for grace. Here comes an important point. Surrender appears easy because people imagine that once they say with their lips, I surrender, and put their burden on God, they can be free to do whatever they like. But the fact is that you can have no likes or dislikes after you surrender. Your will should be completely non-existent, the Lord's will taking its place. There's that wonderful story of Girish Ghosh where um, Sri Ramakrishna tells him, give me your power of attorney. And he thought that would be very easy to do and found instead that once he had done that, he could think of nothing else because everything belonged then to, to Ramakrishna. The death of the ego in this way brings about a state which is not different from jnana. So by whatever path you may go, you must come to jnana or oneness, the unity of existence. Surrender once and for all has to be without any desire. So long as the sense of doership is there, there's a desire, and that also is personality. If this goes, the self is itself will shine forth in all its purity from within the heart. The sense of doership is the bondage, not the actions themselves. That's the important point. Be still and know that I am God, is a quote from the Bible. Here stillness is a total surrender without a vestige of individuality. Stillness will prevail, and there will be no agitation of mind. Agitation of mind is the cause of desire, 
the sense of doership and of personality. If that is stopped, there is quiet in the mind. Their knowing means being. If you think of a personal God, surrender to him and abide by his will, whether it appears or vanishes. Await his pleasure. If you ask him to do as you please, it is not surrender. He knows what is best and when and how to do it. Leave everything entirely to him. His is the burden. You no longer have any cares. All your cares are his. Such is real surrender. Ramana Maharshi tells us it is enough that one surrenders oneself. Surrender is to give oneself up to the original cause of one's being. Do not delude yourself by imagining such a source is a God outside you. Your source is within yourself. Give yourself up to it. That means you should seek the source and merge in it. One of the chief obstacles to uniting ourselves with God's will is the conflict that most people see between inner and outer life, between meditation and work. Life is one thing, and they divide it into compartments, and that only impedes us. Spiritual life is the unfoldment of divine consciousness and the transformation of the whole personality. Spiritual practice will gain intensity and concentration only when we are able to unite our inner and our outer life. In effect, this means unifying meditation and work into a single discipline. In Vedantic practice, the meditative process is the focusing of consciousness on the inner self. By continually offering the lower self as an oblation into the higher self, consciousness gets turned back into its source, and it becomes a sort of meditation. This kind of self-surrender practice as meditation is called jnana yajna, or the knowledge sacrifice. It doesn't need a special time or a place or sitting in silence. It goes along with work. Work done with meditative awareness is in itself a technique of meditation. This unification of work and meditation into a single discipline is called karma samadhi, or work meditation, in the Gita. In order to practice this, we have to begin by bringing our consciousness inside while engaging in simple life activities, like breathing, seeing, eating. We should start with a limited field of awareness before trying to bring this practice into our social encounters. Our tea or right understanding has to be awakened. In the end, all activities, including those of the senses, mind, pranas, everything must come under the control of the centralized will. By practice, gradually, our consciousness gets more interiorized and develops into an undercurrent of meditative awareness of the self, flowing at all times. To a person who has reached this stage, every activity becomes a meditation, as well as a sacrifice. According to Vedanta, the soul has in it the power of infinite consciousness. But this power lies veiled, owing to the presence of ignorance in the form of egoism. 
The whole universe and all life activities are maintained by the divine as an act of self-sacrifice. There's only one sacrifice, the great cosmic sacrifice of God, known as Brahma Yajna. This is uniting our will with the will of God. Our individual efforts become sacrifice only insofar as they are consciously coordinated with the divine will or sacrifice. By uniting our will with the will of God, we open up ourselves to universal life. This is the union of the individual consciousness with divine consciousness. The work and meditation are united through sacrifice and transformed into a channel of divine power. Swami Bhajananda tells us in some Shiva temples you see a pot hung above the sacred linga and there's a small hole at the bottom of the pot and water continuously drips onto the linga. This is a symbol that every moment of our life has to be an oblation of the self into the supreme self. Every life activity has to be converted into a sacrifice to Shiva the Lord of sacrifice. Yajna means working, doing all work as a sacrifice, and the whole world is a cosmic sacrifice. The realization of the ultimate reality is true religion, which is both individual and social. Realization is individual, but men of realization see God everywhere as spirit as the sum total of all souls, they know they are not the doer of action. They become united with the will of God or the cosmic action. They say it isn't possible for an illumined soul to take a wrong step. It's like the expert piano player. He no longer thinks about playing. He simply plays and he doesn't make any mistakes. It's hard to understand how this differs from a passive state. When Sri Ramakrishna heard about someone who claimed to be a knower of Brahman, but who was leading an immoral life, saying it didn't matter what he did, Ramakrishna said, I spit on his Vedanta. <laughs> the knower of Brahman cannot take a false step. He's in tune with the divine will and acts always in accordance with that will. The divine will works through him as it were. He appears to act but it is the divine who is doing the action through him. He knows he's not the doer. Listen to the words of Sister Navedita from Kali, the mother. Arise, my child, and go forth a man. Bear manfully what is thy lot to bear, that that comes to thy hand to be done. Do it with full strength and fear not. Forget not that I, the giver of manhood, the giver of womanhood, the holder of victory, am thy mother. Think not life is serious. What destiny but thy mother's play? Come, be my play child for a while. Murmurest thou in need of a purpose? Thinkest thou the ball is purposeless with which the mother plays? Knowest thou not that her toy is a thunderbolt? charged with power to shatter the worlds at the turn of her wrist. Act no, ask not of plans. Needs the arrow any plan when it is loosened from the bow? Such art thou. When the life is lived and the plan stands revealed, 
Till then, O child of time, know nothing. My sport is unerring, for that alone set forth on the day's journey. Think it was for my pleasure that thou came forth into the world, and for that again, when night falls and my desire is accomplished, I shall withdraw thee to my rest. Ask nothing, seek nothing, plan nothing. Let my will flow through thee as an ocean through an empty shell. But this thing understand, not one movement shall be in vain. Not one effort shall fail at last. Shrink not from defeat. Embrace despair. Pain is not different from pleasure, if I will both. Rejoice, therefore, when you come to the place of tears and see me smile. At such spots do I keep my meeting with men, and I fold them deep into my heart. Look for no mercy for thyself, and I shall make thee the bearer of great vessels of mercy to others. Fulfill gladly the meanest service, service and leave high places unthought. Be steadfast in the toil I set thee. Shrink from no demand that the task makes on thee. Feel no responsibility and ask for no reward. Strong, fearless, resolute, when the sun sets and the game is done. Thou shalt know well that I, Kali, the giver of manhood, the giver of womanhood, am thy mother. This is true self-surrender. Swamiji says that the life of sannyas must be one of self-sacrifice. The true sannyasins forgo even their own liberation and live for doing good to the world, for the good of the many, for the happiness of the many is the sannyasin born. His life is vain indeed who embracing sannyas forgets this ideal. The sannyasin verily is born into this world to lay down his life for others. When he finally renounces all worldly ties after performing the Viraja Homa, he symbolically transforms his higher self into a fire altar, and henceforth his whole life becomes a sacrificial living, and he continually offers every thought, every action, every experience, the ego itself as an oblation into his inner altar, the flame color of the clothes of that of the sannyasin is the symbol of the altar of fire, and it reminds him constantly of the sacrificial nature of the monastic vocation. He is called an atma-yajnan, or self-sacrificer. The most important function of the law of sacrifice is the transformation of the consciousness. This unites karma and upasana, work and meditation. Swamiji tells us we won't be happy till we're willing to give up everything. Everyone sacrifices the husband for the sake of the wife, the wife for the sake of the child. Even birth itself is a great sacrifice. The mother bears the child in pain and sacrifices herself for the child. 
At first we sacrifice because we want something in return. Later we understand that all individual lives are only part of the cosmic life and are governed by universal laws, such as this law of sacrifice. The knower understands that all work is done by the divine, and he remains a witness of the cosmic process going on around him. He doesn't think that he is sacrificing, but simply lets the divine work and lets it go on unimpeded by the resistance of his own ego. He understands the sacrifice is entirely God's action and not his own. When one realizes Brahman, the ego, mind and body get divinitized. They become channels of divine power or shakti. Sacrifice becomes complete cooperation with the universal will or the will of a divine, a joyful self-giving. Learning to pray is also learning to listen. Within the heart, we wait for the answer for God's words, which may come even when we haven't asked. Listening is a form of prayer in which our whole being is receptive. Prayer is communion with God. We share with him our needs, and we also learn to be attentive, as Rumi says. He so beautifully writes, Make everything in you an ear, each atom of your being, and you will hear at every moment what the source is whispering to you, just to you, and for you, without any need for my words or anyone else's. You are, we all are, the beloved of the beloved. And in every moment, in every event of your life, the beloved is whispering to you exactly what you need to hear and know. Who can ever explain this miracle? It simply is. Listen and you will discover it in every passing moment. Listen, and your whole life will become a conversation in thought and action between you and him, directly, wordlessly, now and always. God is speaking always, but we can't always hear him. Divine communication to consciousness is in the correspondence with silence rather than speech. In the Bible, there's a text that says, there was a great and mighty wind splitting mountains and shattering rocks, but God was not in the wind. After the wind came an earthquake, but God was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but God was not in the fire. Finally, after the fire came a still, small voice. That is the only answer that Elijah gets but it is enough to send him back into the world to do God's work. Most important for us today may be the quiet yet overpowering consciousness inside us of what is right. The still, small voice speaks the deepest truths that we know. It comes to us at moments of intense joy and also in sadness when we feel the most alone. The still, small voice can lift us out of despair, as it did Elijah. It can remind us that our lives have meaning and purpose, and that there is work to be done in this world. It is said that we are in a state of inescapable union, but we don't know it. We go into ourselves to find it. This work of consciousness and realization is love. 
Holiness simply in doing God's will and in being just what God wants us to be. And sacrifice is the only test of love, the sign of wisdom and the proof of strength. Your giving is a struggle for higher consciousness and harmony. This calls for sacrifice of the I, the ego. All our actions have to be connected to our inner light, the light of the Atman. This is the knowledge sacrifice spoken of in the Gita. It is through this sacrifice that man realizes the truth. St. Teresa of Lisieux tells us, if I did not simply live from one moment to another, it would be impossible for me to be patient. But I only look at the present. I forget the past, and I take good care not to think of the future. Toward the end of her life, her sister writes, it was through the grace of God alone that Therese had reached this state of absolute surrender to him. She stated, the words of Job, even though he should kill me, yet will I trust him, always fascinated me from childhood days. It took me a long time, however, to reach that degree of surrender. Now I have reached it. God has placed me in this degree, for he has taken me up into his arms and placed me there. Brother Lawrence also says, and if we are in the dark night, this inner spiritual darkness where we understand nothing, it becomes our way of being in the presence of God through his permissive will. We don't have to understand his will to accept it. And it is this very not understanding that is the dark night, I think. And while our emotions may be confused, love is in the will which transcends both lack of understanding and the understandable human emotion. And it is only in this context that we can say, this too is for the good. And sometimes that saying is like the words of Job, even though he slay me, yet will I love him. Here we see it is an act of will, a surrender of our will in love to the will of God. The cloud of unknowing says, seeing God takes place in a cloud of darkness, a lack of knowing, and a forgetting of that which is known. Natural understanding cannot lead to knowledge of spiritual things, but a failing to understand may. This state itself is a state of will, and the state feels a naked intent unto God. The condition is love. Divine comprehension is attained in love and in bliss. St. John of the Cross also says, the soul sees God and this sight transforms it into God himself. A total transformation of will into the will of God. The greater the soul's love, the deeper into God it goes. When a man has been brought to nothing, he will become the instrument of God. In another place in the Bible, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
This is how we turn our life into worship. We must be completely transformed, not just our external behavior, but the way we think and feel. Our minds have to be changed, be transformed by the renewal of your minds. In the Gita, it says, freedom from activity is never achieved by abstaining from action. No one can become perfect by merely ceasing to act. In fact, no one can ever rest from activity, even for a moment. All are helplessly forced to act by the gunas. The world is imprisoned by its own activity, except when actions are performed as worship of God. Therefore, you must perform every action sacramentally and be free from attachment to the results. Every action is performed by the gunas. Man, deluded by his egotism, thinks, I am the doer. But he who has true insight knows that when the senses attach themselves to objects, gunas are merely attaching themselves to gunas. Knowing this, he does not become attached to his action. The illumined soul, whose heart is in Brahman, thinks always, I am doing nothing. No matter what he sees, hears, touches, smells, eats, no matter whether he's moving, sleeping, breathing, speaking, or doing something with his hand, or opening his eyes, or closing his eyes, thus he knows always, I am not seeing, I am not hearing. It is the senses that hear and touch the things of the senses. He puts aside desire and offers the act to Brahman. The lotus leaf rests unwetted on water. He rests on action, untouched by action. Do not say God gave us this delusion. You dream you're the doer. You dream that action is done. You dream that action bears fruit. It is your ignorance. that the, It is the world's delusion that gives you these dreams. The Lord is everywhere and always perfect. What does he care for the sin or righteousness of man? The Atman is the light. The light is covered by darkness. This darkness is delusion. That is why we dream. When the light of the Atman drives out our darkness, that light shines forth from us, a sun in splendor, the revealed Brahman. The devoted dwell with him. They know him always, here in the heart, where action is not. He is their aim. Made free by knowledge, they find the place of freedom, the place of no return. This is the state described in the Bible as, in him we live, move, and have our being. It's like the old song, which I always want to quote, Shakali tomari cha icha mai tara tumi, tomar karma tumi karma loke bole kariyami. O mother, all is done by thy sweet will. Thou art self-willed, O mother of mine. Thou workest thy own work, men only call it theirs. Swami Shivananda said in his presidential speech to the Ramakrishna Mutt and Mission in 1926, Be like the arrow that darts from the bow. Be like the hammer that falls on the anvil. Be like the sword that pierces its object. The arrow does not murmur if it misses the target. The hammer does not fret if it falls in a wrong place. And the sword does not lament if it is broken in the hands of its wielder. Yet there is a joy in being made, used, and broken, and an equal joy in being finally set aside.
Swami Bodhananda once said, we have no faith, since we, so we get impatient. If we can really depend on his will, we'll see that he gets everything done at the proper time. We're but tools in his hands. As it is said, I am the house and you're the owner. I'm the machine and you are the operator. Be thou the instrument in God's hand. Swamiji tells us, let us give up our whole body and mind and everything as an eternal sacrifice unto the Lord and be at peace, perfect peace with ourselves. Instead of pouring oblations into the fire as a sacrifice, perform this one great sacrifice day and night, the sacrifice of your little self. I searched for wealth in this world. Thou art the only wealth I have found. I sacrifice myself unto thee. I search for someone to love. Thou art the only beloved I have found. I sacrifice myself unto thee. Let us repeat this day and night and say nothing for me. No matter whether the thing is good, bad, or indifferent, I don't care for it. I sacrifice all unto thee. The only true duty is being unattached and to work as free beings. To give up all work unto God, all our duties are his. Blessed are we that we are sent here. We serve our time. And whether we do it ill or well, who knows? If we do it well, we shall not think of the fruits. If we do it ill, we shall not worry. Let us be at rest, be free, and work. This kind of freedom is very hard to attain. One teacher told me, in matters spiritual, one needs hardly do anything. One needs only to remain quiet and resign to the will of God. Your role must be passive until you get the final realization and you merge in that reality. As Nevedita said, ask nothing, seek nothing, plan nothing. Let my will flow through thee as the ocean through an empty shell. This is doing God's will and knowing that we're not the doer. This is freedom. This is mukti, the end of sorrow. Toward the end of her life, one of our senior nuns was having trouble remembering anything at all and was barely able to speak. And she put her, heart on, her hand on her heart and said, I can't remember the word, the word. She was talking about her mantra. The nun who was with her said, it doesn't matter. And she put her hand on her own heart and said, it's here, it's here. And the older nun said, yes, yes. With every beat of my heart, I am sending my love to God. This is self-surrender, uniting ourselves with God.